want you to turn with me, if you'd be willing, to the Gospel according to John. And uh, Pastor and I were talking about this before the service when he was making fun of me in front of a bunch of people. Um, I've been studying the Gospel of John back since I was in uh, college, and it's just been a slow process. I'll spend about a year or two there and just crawling through a couple pa- uh, chapters, and then uh, we'll branch off. And we did studies in Amos, and we did studies in Hebrews, and I did studies, obviously, in Revelation, and we've done, you know, some Romans things, and uh, even James and Titus. But uh, always come back, and kind of John is a book that I'm going to spend my entire life on. I wouldn't mind writing a commentary on it someday. And so getting really just nitpicky about words and, and uh, you know, certain phrases that John uses that are peculiar to him. The gospel, according to John, is so unique among all the gospels. I mean, obviously there's four, but John is, is unique. He's different, and he's kind of out of the box, and even the language that he uses. When I was in college, uh, my first Greek course, <laughs> I, was so, I was so intimidated. I mean, I wasn't that hot in high school. Uh, in fact, I majored in shop, just to be quite frank about it. And then when God called me to preach and realized I had to go to college, uh, that was intimidating, but even more intimidating when they said, you have to have a second language. I was like, I didn't, I don't do English well, much less a second language, and it's Greek, you know. So um, we began to take Greek class, and I was, I was so nervous. And uh, the, one, the first day in class, he said, we're going to begin with the simplest book in the Bible. And I was like, that's going to be my book right there. And he said, so I want you to open your Bibles to the gospel according to John. He says it has some of the simplest Greek to work with in our New Testament. And so I said, that's my book. And so I started in 1997 studying the gospel according to John. And what I like about it is John takes words that the children of his day use, very simple words. Unlike Paul, Paul makes up words. L- really, you have language used by Paul that you don't not only find in the New Testament, but you don't find even in secular Greek. What Paul does is he says, I'm desperately trying to communicate this to you. And he says a word over here, and he says a word over there, and he says, hey, that might work. And he sticks them together. He says, that's what I want to tell you. And we not only scratch our head, but I think the people of his day scratch their head as well, personally. But see, John's not like that. John uses simple language, and he loads it with meaning. So he's very picturesque in his, in his writing. He's, he's very uh, descriptive. Uh, he uses phrases that are obviously not literal. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 6 tonight. And one of the thrusts that we're not going to deal with this evening, but one of the thrusts that he says over and over and over, it's just, it's, it's just in their face. He says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Now that's simple language, but obviously there's something beyond the surface that he's trying to communicate. And so I just, uh, I love that kind of communication. It makes you think, and, and it's a, it's a, there's, there's an involvement when you get into the Word, and the Holy Spirit's living in your life, and it's a conversation, and He's speaking to you, and, and it's, it's, you move beyond the surface level of the pages. Uh, I've been at that in this gospel for, obviously, since, you know, 1997, so 10 years now, and uh, working on 11, and it's been fantastic. And um, what I found was, is as you move through the Gospel of John, he, he's developing uh, a message, obviously, and he's been developing it from chapter 1. Now, the first 18 verses of the gospel is, is, again, a prologue. It's an introductory kind of a statement. The actual narrative begins at chapter 1, verse 19, where he, he takes off and he chooses, he selects scenes in Jesus' ministry. You with me? He selects scenes in Jesus' ministry to help get across this message. And the culmination of that message is in John chapter 6. 
Now, this has been really, really significant because the message of the gospel, the message of the gospel from John's perspective, if you want to know what John understands, how John understands Christianity, Christianity is something that cannot be produced by us. Christianity is not a discipline. Christianity is not something you can bring about. See, you can't get up in the morning and say, I'm going to, I'm going to bring this about today. I'm going to pull this off. You're not going to do it. Because Christianity is not a product of the flesh. And this was, this, and I can't go through the whole, obviously, five chapters. But um, a highlight of this is, uh, one of the highlights of this message is in John chapter 3. And the conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus. And man, wouldn't it be something to be there. You see, the way Nicodemus, and again, the language is significant. The way that Nicodemus is presented in chapter uh, 3 is extremely significant. There's words that are stuck in the first couple verses of chapter 3 that don't need to be there. And they're stuck in there to make a point. He's describing Nicodemus in a certain way. And just to briefly overview this, he says in chapter 3, verse 1, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Now, he could have just said, there's a Pharisee named Nicodemus, but he didn't say that. He said, there's a man of the Pharisees. And the Greek word of is not the normal of that's used, and you can't say normal, but it's not probably the typical word that would be used in terms of just a normal genitive. It is the Greek word ek, and it literally means out of. And you could probably stretch that to mean produced from. So he's introducing to you with the language, a man, if you want to know the kind of man that Nicodemus is, he's the kind of man that's produced from the, from the, uh, the Pharisee group, okay? You want to know, you, we, they obviously knew who the, the, the audience of, of this gospel in their century would have known who a fair, the experts in the law. I mean, they were teachers, they were leaders. This is the, hey, if you want to know the kind of man that Nicodemus is, he comes out of this group. But he doesn't stop there. He continues and says, Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council, which, of course, was the Sanhedrin. So he was one of the teachers of the teachers. So he had great authority and weight uh, among his people. And this is how he presents Nicodemus. And that becomes uh, uh, really pointed. It becomes really kind of outspoken because when you go through the chapter, Jesus contrasts him with the 12 disciples who are ignorant fishermen, Okay, you get tax collectors up there. You get, they're all from Galilee, and, and, and in their world, you know, Jerusalem was probably more the Harvard. Galilee was like, you know, boondocks, kind of hick school, kind of no scholars came from there with any credibility kind of thing. See, they all come, even Jesus came from Galilee. And so there's this big contrast, and the whole, and the whole deal is Jesus looked at Nicodemus and says, hey, you're not in, you don't, you're, not, you're not seeing what's taking place. Hey, what's happening in your midst is totally beyond you, and you can't even get in on it. But the disciples are. And so you walk out of that chapter going, how could, how could a man like Nicodemus who's got the credentials, who has the authority. He, he, I mean, he, he's got a good heart. He's one of the only Pharisees that come out at night to see Jesus. How could he miss it? And, fair, and, and, and of course, the message is that Nicodemus' entire um, brilliance, uh, all of his, uh, uh, you know, religion, you might say, is all based out of his flesh. And the message of chapter 3 is given in verse 6. Jesus says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. 
And the disciples are living not out of the flesh. The disciples are living out of the Spirit. So, again, the message of the gospel is it's beyond you. The disciples are getting in on something that there's no way they should be getting in on it. They're experiencing something that there's no way they should be able to experience. Now, I don't know what that means to you, but see, when I became a Christian, that was one of the first things that God dealt with me on. Um, I told you that I got my call to ministry in a bathroom at Sears. Well, my call to become a Christian when I was saved was even more bizarre. I was in a car and I was in California and I was living with a couple that I told you about and their kids and their Christian couple and they let me use their car, really nice 280ZX and it was nice, California, I was going back and forth from the beach and surfing, it was great. And um, I was on my way home uh, one day, I think from the base, because he, he was a sergeant there, and there was this preacher on the radio preaching and I thought I'll, I'll give him a shot and just listen to him. And I can't go through the whole story, but he was talking about um, people who are called to ministry that are the most unlikely candidates for ministry. And the story was about these two shepherds, and they had this one shepherd had a sheep that was a little lamb that was really rebellious, and, and the, the shepherd goes out and breaks his leg, which is what they do in that culture, he immediately sets the leg and, and then keeps the little lamb right beside him all the time until he's nursed back to health. And then when he sets the lamb down, uh, the little lamb never again leaves his side. And the, and the guy on the radio pointed his finger out of the tape deck into my nose and he said there are those of you out there that have been broken by God you've done your own thing you've been rebellious you ran your own way and God's calling you to preach and I thought there's no way I, I can't do that I mean when I went into when I went into Marine Corps boot camp obviously it was you know you just get it done you know you just whatever it takes you just pull it off you just but see I didn't have the background for Christianity and so obviously the first thing I did was is I went to the Bible and I thought there's no way that I'm preacher material but from the book of Genesis all the way down to the end of the, you know, the New Testament the people that God calls to preach are totally see they're not, they can't bring it to pass not the, and you, and you, I can tell you stories about David the youngest of the brothers and all of that kind of stuff in the Old Testament but what was most shocking to me coming into the Gospel of John was the 12 disciples talking to Nicodemus Jesus did not go down to call his 12 disciples from, this, from the scholars from among the scholars from the colleges from the schools he went out and got ignorant fishermen <laughs> he got Peter types I mean out of all those people that was just I related to that. And I thought, how, how, how can that be? See, that doesn't, that doesn't compute. That doesn't make sense. And in the midst of all that kind of, and again, John was where I began to study that. But see, I was dealing with this from the very beginning of my walk with Jesus, that Jesus was calling me to something that I could not pull off. That's Christianity. See, Christianity, and, and Paul, by the way, just he, he, he addresses this because it's the message of the gospel. He talks about the, the fruit of the Christian life as being the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's not the fruit of what I can produce. It's the fruit of who he is. Self-control. See, hey, teens, if your bodily drives are out of control and they're controlling you, I look at you and say, you're surprised? Everyone's bodily drives are like that. The Christian is the one who admits that and says, would you come in my life and control what I was never able to control? And therefore, the Holy Spirit moves in my life and brings under submission in a daily intimate walk with him what I never could bring under control. Patience. You cannot raise a two-year-old without Jesus. 
effectively or without prison time, however you want to talk about that. I mean, he has patience. And so from the very beginning, this was pressed upon me. Jeremiah, I'm calling you to, to, to literally, I'm placing you into areas in which you cannot depend upon yourself, where there's nothing to cling on to. And this was something, again, over and over and over. It's going all the way through the Gospel of John. Every single scene is like that. And he's building from chapter 1 all the way up to chapter 6. And if I were to look at my life from a chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6, obviously you had the calling to ministry, which was a whole big deal. But uh, when I got out of, when I got out of uh, the Marine Corps and, and began to say, okay, I'm going to go uh, to school. I need to save some money. I'm going to be a you know, minister. So I went to get a, you know, a job at Sears and... Uh, I was kicked out of the Marine Corps. I had a bad discharge. And how in the world am I going to get a job? And it, it's, everything was against me, and yet, hey, he provided. I go to school. Uh, Olivet, I had to submit my transcripts. <laughs> and my first, my first, I, first thing I said to David Pickering was the guy who was approved me for financial aid. I was like, I'm going to study this time. I'm telling you. That's the old Jeremiah. Not the new improved, okay? I'm, I'm going to study this time. Got a horrible GPA, I said, I promise. <laughs> he was like, relax, relax, you know? And so I went into college, and then I didn't, I, hey, I, I didn't study in high school. When I was in high school, we didn't have to have a second language. We didn't have higher math. You know, I had geometry. I don't think I attended most of the classes. And so going in college, again, I'm stretched beyond, and it's been the same. Then you, I, Marriage. You know, kids. Literally, God has, pl- has placed me over and over and over to live beyond what I can produce, live beyond myself. See, this is the message. Now, he's been moving, the, he's been moving this in my life over the last 10 years all the way up through, cha- through chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. When you come into chapter 6, it is the culmination of everything that he's been developing up through the first five chapters, and it's stated here. Every theme, every theme that's been going on from chapter 1 up through chapter 5 is present here in chapter 6. And he kind of brings it all together and crystallizes it into one message, living beyond yourself. Now, he does that in chapter 6. I kind of want to give you an overview of the chapter this evening. And he does that with three particular things. And I know it sounds like a three-point deal, but it really is three particular things. There are three concepts And I don't like to call them concepts. There are three statements that Jesus makes that really communicate the gospel from his own perspective. In fact, we're calling this study, I'm titling this study, The Gospel According to Jesus. See, if you want to know what he's talking, if you want to know what he believes, the the real deal of the good news, he expresses it with three phrases, but he's talking about the good news of becoming a new creation. And it's in chapter 6. Let me uh, walk you into the chapter just really, really quickly. When you come into chapter 6, obviously, as I said, is the culmination of everything going up through uh, chapter, from chapters 1 through 5. At chapter 7, you enter into a whole new scene. You enter into the last, perhaps, six months, maybe uh, not quite a year of Jesus' ministry. And so things begin to move rapidly, and you have a direct address to the Jews. Chapter 6 is a kind of the tail end of what he's been doing thus far, and it's centered on this Galilean crowd. We know that probably two and a half years of Jesus' ministry has been focused on the Galileans. 
Okay, the Galilean crowd. They're the ones that have seen all the miracles. Uh, I mean, hey, the, the wedding at Cana in chapter 2 of John obviously was in Galilee. Uh, you have uh, all the way back up through the Samaritan deal and, and the ministry that took place up there with the Roman uh, officer. And moving all the way up chapter 6, this scene, the feeding of the 5,000 scene, is in Galilee. In fact, he goes across the lake in the middle of the chapter to Capernaum, which is also in Galilee. So this, he's dealing with the Galilean crowd. Now, one of the things we found is... Uh, obviously the chapter begins with the feeding of the 5,000 miracle. There are several miracles in the ministry of Jesus that, are, that have significance to them. But the 5,000 miracle stands out. I personally believe it stands out as, as in the top two or three miracles of his, of his entire ministry. And this is so not only because it occurs in all four gospels, which not all of his miracles do, Okay? But it appears in all four Gospels. But it not only appears in all four Gospels, but all the details of the miracle are similar. And the miracle always takes place, and you can, you can check this out for yourself. The 5,000 miracle always takes place in a crucial time in Jesus' ministry. In John's Gospel, okay, in his chapter 6, where the, the feeding of the 5,000 occurs, the, the, the miracle kind of is a launching pad for a weeding out process that's going to take place. Let me say that again. The feeding of the 5,000 miracles sets the stage for a weeding out process. And you'd say, what do you mean by a weeding out process? 5,000 people are following around Jesus, calling him rabbi. They believe themselves to be his disciples. I mean, they are going out on a limb. They have followed out in the middle of nowhere, declaring him to be king. Uh, hey, they are, they are in it for the long haul. They're expecting him. In fact, at the end of chapter, or at the end of verse 14 which uh, was at the end, toward the end of the miracle, they're going to come and try to make him king by force because he's been delaying and dragging his feet kind of thing. So, hey, this group is following him around, calling him their rabbi. They're going to be his disciples. But by the time you come to the end of the chapter, all of them turn away and you have only 12 that are left. And those 12 are, of course, the 12 disciples. And Jesus even asked them too, hey, you don't have to be in on this. If you look at... Um, just really quickly, verse 60 of chapter 6. On hearing this, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? Verse 66, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And Jesus turned to the 12 and said, you do not want to leave too, do you? Implying, hey, there's a door. See, Jesus, this is so significant to me. See, Jesus wasn't building something he wasn't going for the biggest church. In fact, if you look at the ministry of Jesus from an American perspective, he's blowing all kinds of things. His district assembly point is, you know, big time. I mean, hey, his own congregation, they don't vote him out, they kill him. <laughs> Just <clears throat> So, I mean, hey, he, he, this is really aggressive stuff with this crowd, really, when it comes down to it. So, hey, chapter 6 marks out a weeding, uh, weeding process among the 5,000 crowd. Now, the problem with the 5,000 crowd is they began all the way back in chapter 2. They've seen all the miracles. And Jesus, this was really interesting, Jesus has a consistent posture towards this group. And what I mean by posture, he has an attitude towards them. Every time he's around this group, it's like he doesn't want anything to do with them. Now, that's really odd almost. Because two or three times up through chapter 6, they come and they're hailing Jesus. And he has, it's almost like he has nothing good to say about this group. In fact, when you come into chapter 6, it gets really pronounced, and he addresses the group for the first time. Now, we're going to go into more detail on this tomorrow night, but I want to pick this up in verse 25. 
What has happened? Jesus has fed them. They're going to make him king by force. In verse 15, he runs up the side of this mountain. He doesn't want to be their king. He hides out to the middle of the night. The disciples in verse 16 leave and head over to Capernaum in a boat. And of course, in the middle of the night, Jesus walks down the side of the mountain. He sneaks away from the crowd, goes out in the middle of the water. And of course, verses 16 through 21, the whole walking on the water scene happens outside of the knowledge of the 5,000 crowd. In verse 22 down through verse 24, that's the section that describes when the sun rises, they're all like, where did Jesus go? Hey, they send scouts up probably to find out where he's at. They look under every rock. They don't find him. And they say, hey, let's go to Capernaum in search of him. So in verse 25, they find him. And they, it says, when they find him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus cuts to the chase and he says, I tell you the truth. You are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. We're going to go into detail on this tomorrow night. But he just cuts to the chase. And the, the, of course, the, the bottom line of it is, you're after me, not because of me, but you're after me because of the food. Which again is a violation of the whole message. See, Christianity is all about him. It's being wrapped up into him. It's not about devotion. It's not about sacrifice. I mean, really. Because if you look at this group in whom Jesus almost shuns, I mean, they are sacrificial. They're dragging their families out. They're putting themselves in danger. They're declaring him to be king. All kinds of those things that we find in our churches today, perhaps, as really significant, he does not. See, they're not into him. They're into him for what he can give them. I'll give you a really quick illustration of this. I was in college, and um, I was about a year before I graduated. My father was dying, and I went to the hospital, and we were there, and late in the evening every night and one night we were there in the hospital over the intercom comes this announcement or this this plea if there's a minister in the building we need you to go to this floor and talk to the attendant at the desk of course all my family's looking at me and I'm like I'm not even graduated you know and I'm not a pastor <laughs> so they keep announcing this and so I was like okay hey get off my back I'll go and so um, I was nervous and I just I don't know why I didn't want to go but I went down and I got, off the, I got off the elevator at the floor and I could hear what I didn't know then was the guy that I was going to see. I could hear him yelling. He was yelling and cursing and all this kind of stuff. And, and so I go to the attendant and she's like, that room over there. I'm like, I knew I shouldn't have come down here. I walk in and the, they see me coming and, and the boy runs inside who was his son. He says, dad, the preacher's here. So I go inside and, and uh, they clear everybody out of the room except for me, him and his boy. And the guy looks at me, and he says, uh, you know the sinner's prayer? And I was like, I think so. And he said, I want you to lead me in the sinner's prayer. I want to go to heaven. And he just got done just butchering his ex-wife, and there's this big family drama, and they're all outside arguing, and I close the door. And my thought was, you know, I want to explain what this guy's getting into, that sinner's prayer was not just, it's not just magic words. I mean, come on. Sinner's prayer is about Jesus. I've, I've never been who you wanted me to be. I've never known you the way you want me to know you. I've never lived, I've never given myself to your plan and your perspective. I've never lived if you've called me to live. Never, I've never identified with you or participated. And if I could go back, oh, I would, and I was going to, I started explaining all this. And he goes, excuse me, excuse me. He said, I don't want your theology. He goes, I want you to lead me in the sinner's prayer. I want to go to heaven. And it dawned on me. This guy didn't want anything to do with Jesus 
his whole deal of Jesus was to get Jesus, to get beyond Jesus to something better. The guy didn't want to go to hell. He wasn't saying this prayer. It wouldn't have anything to do with Jesus. It had to do with mansions in the sky. That's this crowd. They're not after Jesus for Jesus. They're after Jesus for... And so this guy goes, are you going to lead me in the sinner's prayer? I said, yeah. You're still going to die and go to hell, but sure, I guess I'll lead you to... No, I didn't say that. Now I would have said that. I probably should have said that. I probably should have said that to the guy. I didn't know what to say, you know? I was like, sure. And I walked out of there, and I was just... I was overwhelmed. This guy did not have a clue. He didn't have a clue. He didn't love Jesus. And it rang in my ears. Jesus says, many on that day are going to stand before me and say, Lord, Lord. You say, I never knew you, man. And that's this group. And Jesus loves this group enough to say, hey, you're not into me. See, you've missed what I've been about from the very beginning. This is beyond miracles. See, this is beyond establishing Jerusalem as a political force in the world. This is beyond mansions in the sky kind of stuff. This is literally leaning on, relying upon, knowing me. It's eating my flesh and drinking my blood kind of stuff. See, they have not got into this. They have not understood this. So everything going on in chapter 6 is focused on this group, the 5,000 crowd. And he loves them enough to say, I cannot tolerate what I see going on in your life. See, you're missing what I want you to get in on. And that's why I don't want to be your king. Because the kind of king you want is not the kind of king I came to be. And so he really delivers what he's talking about to this group. Okay. And he does it with three particular phrases. And I want to sprint through them or walk briskly and, and look at those together. Because again, it's all, it's all in the theme of beyond yourself. It's, it's wrapped up in him. It's relying on him. It's, it's, it's being put in a place where you have nothing to stand on but Jesus alone, period. Okay. The three phrases are believe, the verb, believe. The second one is eternal life phrase. And the third one is a kind of a weird phrase, which I struggle with and struggle with and struggle with, raise them up at the last day. It, it occurs a couple times, five times, raise them up at the last time, uh, or the last day a couple times, and then raise him up at the last day. But it's the same thing. Believe eternal life and raise them up at the last day. Okay. First one, believe. First off, this word believe is used 98 times in 21 chapters in this gospel. Pretty significant term. It's translated believe, uh, faith, trust, entrust. There's several different uh, translations of it, but it's used 98 times, translated in a variety of ways. Here's what it's really significant, and every commentator picks up on this. The noun form of that term is completely absent. It's all over the other three Gospels, and it's not bad, but in John's Gospel, it's completely absent. The word believe, 98 times used in this Gospel, every time occurs in the verbal form every single time. Because for John, there is no arrival point of, ah, I made it kind of a thing. Christianity, and by the way, believe is the statement of salvation in this gospel. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. So believing is, a, is, a, is an action. In fact, some have described it, which is the way I describe it, as a response See, believing in Jesus is a response. It is an action of being put in a situation where you're beyond yourself and the only, the only option you have is to trust in him. See, the only option you have is to believe in him. The only, the only thing you have to grip on is him and him alone. 
And I believe, I believe this, I believe this, I believe this. I believe God puts us in situations. He puts us in circumstances where the only thing we have to stand on is him and him alone. That our money can't bail us out. Our wits can't bail us out. This was huge to me in marriage. My wife's not here, so I can talk about her. But uh, she knows all this. But um, when we got married, we both came from non-Christian homes and non-Christian environment. And um, I was so unchurched. Yeah, I went to church some but you, I don't think you realize how off the wall I was. You may know. You may have an idea. But uh, growing up, I was so uncultured that when I felt I had a call to ministry, as an, you know, I, had, I had no idea what an evangelist was. I knew guys came and preached. And I, knew the attend, I knew the evangelist kind of deal. But in terms of what I would be doing today, I had no clue what that meant, nor did my wife. And when we got out on the road the first year, of course, I'm kind of a driven kind of a person. I'm not one that you need to kickstart in the morning. And so we, our first year in ministry, um, of course, I preached all the way through college. I held, uh, 30, I held 30 revivals my junior year in college. And so I was, we was going at it. And then the year I graduated in 99, I went into school in uh, January 96, graduated in June of 99. And so we got in and got out, got on the road. In our first year in evangelism, I held 76 revivals, <laughs> which was... It was a great time, my perspective. And uh, my wife uh, said to me, she says, if I knew this is what our life was going to be, I never would have married you. That put a whole damper on the whole relationship that we had, obviously. And uh, for the first time in my life, uh, and of course those are the days that I didn't put my wife first in our marriage. Um, And the Lord had to deal with that. But I was put in a position in those days where... uh, I couldn't control her. I was put in a position for the first time in my life that, I, that my wife was someone that I couldn't make, I couldn't bend, I couldn't... See, I could... You, what do you do with that? You, you threaten? <laughs> what, do you, what do you do with that? And for the very first time in my life, and I had other times, and again, we had the UPS experience, and we had to go into college experience, and I had living among my peers, and, and being in educational classes where I had to rely on Jesus. But my marriage, it was the first time in my life where reputation, and being called to ministry, and, and, uh, and emotional stuff, and travel, all this kind of deal was pressed on me. And I remember vividly going, you've got to do something. And my prayer was, fix her. Oh, come on. <laughs> I, I, was, I was a mess. But the real deal was it was, isn't me. And I, went over, I underwent a renovation in my life for two years. And I was stretched beyond. See, I was put in a situation that I couldn't. And then kids came along. And my son, who has a milk allergy, and we didn't know what that was for the first uh, year of his, or the first, after the first year, he started getting fevers after we started feeding him regular food. We was feeding him milk. And he would get... He's diagnosed um, at different emergency rooms around the country 14 times with fevers between 105.5 and 106.7. And I, I thought the kid was going to die. I mean, we, I was a wreck. And it was, again, the first time where I was, you know, hey, I can't fix this. See, I can't, I can't weasel out of this. And no, God didn't cause those situations to happen in my son. Come on, Jesus doesn't cause fevers in little boys. But Jesus somehow buffered the damage of that and allowed those circumstances in my life so that I would come to a point where say, hey, I trust you in this. I don't see the answer. I I don't see what's going to come about. See, I can't. That's all over this chapter with this group. It's all over this chapter. It begins. Let me give you just a couple of these. See, it begins in verse 5. 
And again, verses, by the way, verses one through four, the whole scene from Jesus' perspective, as John tells it, and John's looking back on the scene, it really isn't directly about the feeding of the 5,000 crowd yet. It's focused on the disciples. And what Jesus says, he's sitting down with his disciples on this mountainside, verse three, the Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he proposes this question, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And dumps it in their lap. There's no way they can pull that off. They probably get together and go, what's he talking about? I have no idea. You know how he is. I don't know. Good night. And so he asked this. Look at verse 6. It says, he asked this only to test him, focused on Philip. And so they respond, Philip does, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Hey, we can't bring this about. And Jesus looks around, and one of the unique parts about this gospel is in, the, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, they just, the bread and lo- the, the loaves and fish just turn up. In this gospel, uh, Andrew steals it from some poor little boy, his sack lunch. Look at verse 8. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish that I just stole from the poor kid. But how far will they go among so many? And Jesus takes a little boy's sack lunch and meets the need and feeds 5,000 people. (laughs) And you can't walk out of this scene. See, never again in the entire New Testament, I looked, even in the other 4,000 miracle, which they debate which comes first. You know, I propose 4,000 came after the 5,000, but who am I? But never again in the entire New Testament, when they come into a feeding situation, we got to feed the people. No one says, we got to find a little boy's sack lunch. That's the answer. Remember that over there? Remember Jesus? Yep, find one. Is there one around here? Preferably, let's get the same amount of... That, see, they didn't miss that. See, the issue wasn't on an inanimate object. Do you know how often I hear that in churches, just between you and I? I go to churches and I hear people say, you know what the problem is, why we're not growing. We don't have a drummer. I'm, that's what it is. If we had a drummer... Pfft, that, we need to get a drummer. I'm like, are you retarded? <laughs> no, no, not retarded in a good way. Retarded means limited. I mean, are you using your noggin? I mean, really? Probably that's too aggressive language for you, but I mean, really? They can come to that kind of conclusion. My family was led to Christ. My father got saved and took us as little kids to a church that was out in the middle of nowhere and had nothing. See, Jesus, it's not Jesus plus anything. It's him and him alone. And this group was utterly dependent upon the person. I'm absolutely, absolutely convinced that Jesus is so good that nothing can rival him. That's not just preacher kind of stuff. I believe that you don't have to entertain teens. I don't believe that we need to have the... And it's nice to have all the bells and whistles that, hey, certain churches can afford. But it's him and him alone. He stands above everything. He's so good. If we ever got a glimpse of him, wow. And this crowd is literally introduced. Jesus is the one. See, he meets the need. It's not Jesus plus him. And not only that, but, and this is a subtlety that's sometimes missed in this, in this uh, account. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account, Jesus uh, takes the bread, breaks it, blesses it, and then gives it to his disciples and they hand it out. But in John's account, they don't do that. See, in John's account, Jesus says, sit down. And in verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. And you begin to scratch your head. Did Jesus really, for 5,000 people? Probably not. But do you think that John's trying to emphasize something? That it's about him. See, the di- disciples didn't even participate in this. So all, and that's just the 5,000 
feeding scene. You also have in the walking across the water deal, and um, the disciples are, in, are afraid. They're absolutely terrified. We get a whole study. We get three studies on, on, the, on the walking of the water scene. Jesus is coming across the water, and it says the disciples are terrified. And Jesus commands them, and I won't go into the details of the language, but it's the strongest grammar that you have in the new, that you can have, that you, that they have available to them to express a command. Jesus commands in the strongest language that's available to him, it is I, don't be afraid. It's like he's leaning up on a wave, putting his foot up, saying, don't you fear, which is absolutely personally ridiculous because that never works. That never, ever, ever works. As if the disciples would go, oh, thanks, Jesus. Really appreciate that. Wow. Like yelling at you. My son would get, uh, and, and when he was two years old, he would be extremely afraid of veggie tails. So I, I put this in practice. I jumped in front of him at the top of my lugs. I screamed, don't be afraid. And it did not work. It just, it, that does not work. I've seen that in every circumstance in my life. That, that does not work. So why, now hear this, why would Jesus do that? So I, I struggled with that. And I looked at the grammar. It's one of the unique phrases used in our New Testament. The command is what they call a passive imperative. And what a passive imperative is, it's a command that's given that they're not to perform. <laughs> we, just, we don't have anything like it in English. And with only we should, we probably how we should translate this is Jesus says, it is I, you give me your fear right now. And I trace that study throughout the New Testament. Do you know everywhere in our entire Bible where God, an angel, or Jesus tells us not to fear every time it's a passive imperative? Do you know that you're not responsible for getting over your fear? You're responsible for releasing that fear to him. <laughs> so not being afraid is not something you pull off. Not being afraid is saying, I'm going to trust you in the midst of this and release my fear to you. That's, a, that's what we say, that'll preach. Because that's truth. That's legendary truth. And again, it's in, it's in the tone of the passage. It's in the tone of the chapter. It's all that he's ever talking with. Would you trust me? Now, hey, I, and again, I don't know, sometimes it's so easy to Christianize this kind of stuff, but it's so easy for us Americans, just to be quite frank, not to trust in him. I mean, because we got MasterCard. <laughs> I mean, really, I never wake up in the morning and go, what am I going to eat? I go to, I charge it. <laughs> I charge it. Even if I don't have the money, I charge it. Because that's our culture. I, it's very, it's very, not very hard, but it's very easily done sometimes to miss the places it's becoming harder. And I think it's a, it's a work of the enemy. It's becoming harder to find ourselves in a place where we're going to be desperately dependent upon him. Unless you're in relationship with him. And he's putting you in a relationship or he's putting you in a church or he's putting you in a tight corner or in a, in a relationship in your life or in a position in your high school or, hey, wherever you at, he's going to take you and put you in a place where the only conclusion you have is, hey, I don't see the outcome of this. I don't see where I'm going. I'm stepping out in faith. I'm going beyond where I, hey, this doesn't make sense, but I'm going to trust you in this. I'm not going to trust that you're going to bring something. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to embrace you. I'm going to find myself in you which was the entire message that we got across uh, in the seven churches in the province of Asia in the book of Revelation. First thing that Jesus says to this group is believe in me. See, and it's not Jesus plus something. Don't trust in me so you get to something. It's trust in me. Hey, believe in me. Get all wrapped up into me. First thing that he says. Sorry I tarried on that. 
really quickly. Second thing is eternal life. And this phrase is used several times as well, and I technically, in my notes here, I was supposed to go through and and show you every time uh, these occur, but eternal life happens uh, some almost 20 times in verses 25 down through the end of the chapter not even counting the beginning part. And eternal life is sometimes uh, used without the adjective eternal. So it's just life. It's the, same, it's the same Greek word or living, which is the same form of the Greek word. And it's not the Greek word bios, eternal physical life, which is where we get our term biology. It's eternal zoe. It's eternal spiritual life. And by the way, <laughs> eternal life is defined in his gospel in chapter 17. I'll just read it to you. Jesus says in his prayer to the Father, verse 3, Now this is, let me back up, verse 2. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life. Now, I mean, that's a very direct statement. You want to know what eternal life is? Jesus says it. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So eternal life is a knowledge and an embrace and a walk with him. And by the way, in this gospel, eternal life is the quality of or the product of believing and trusting in Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is something that's that's very significant that I want to clear up. It's not that I believe in Jesus and then I get eternal life as if like Jesus is like a step on a staircase you know, that I'm kind of walking on and I come to Jesus. Oh, hey, really appreciate you. Get my mansion in the sky. Not that kind of a thing. It's in responding to Jesus, believing in him, trusting in him. In that kind of trust and believing in relationship, I have life. So literally, eternal life, the life that he's called us to live, is a daily reliance upon his person. Wow. Wouldn't it be phenomenal uh, to live that holiness lifestyle? I mean, authentically live a lifestyle of trusting in him, daily walking in his presence, moment by moment, which is a present reality. Paul said, I want to know you and the power of your resurrection. On that day when Jesus looks at me, he's going to say, I know you. He's going to say, I know you. Because eternal life is a knowledge of him. It's not a graduated, it's not, I know Jesus and then I get something better. I believe and I trust in him in some of the most trying and difficult times in my life. When there's every reason not to believe, I, I, I'm going to go off the track record not only, uh, not only of an entire involvement with the human race, but I'm going to go on the entire track record that you have built in my own life and I'm going to trust you when everything tells me not to. And in that trust, I'm living the lifestyle that Jesus calls eternal life. That's the lifestyle that, that's the lifestyle that Christians are called to live. That's the life that Christians are called to have. I believe in Jesus, and believing in Jesus, I have eternal life. Now, the last thing is the phrase, but raise them up at the last day. And this was odd, just to be quite honest with you. If you've ever been in one of your studies before, and you come across a phrase, you just scratch your head and go, what in the world? And I can't personally, through my own personal uh, uh, accountability, and just, uh, I can't just skip that. You know, why does he say that? He says it five times. And it's really weird how he says it. It's like an attachment. For example, uh, one of the first times he says this is down in verse 39. And he's, I mean, he's, this is serious content because he's talking about the will of the Father here. 
He says, verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of them that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. And then he starts saying it over and over to them. It's, it's so repetitive. Uh, you come down a few verses to verse 44. And he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Oh, and I will raise them up at the last day. He says it five different times. You know, believing me, you have eternal life. Oh, and I'll raise you up at the last day. Now, why would he stick that on there? I mean, what does he mean by that? Well, that phrase, and I won't go back into the details of it, but in chapter 5, he uses that same kind of phrase. And raise them up at the last day is obviously being raised up with Christ. It's literally where our salvation comes, becomes sight kind of thing. It's, it's the final straw where, hey, I literally go be with him for eternity. I get the new body. Hey, the, the, I return the way God has called me. Everything's going to be made new. There's going to be a separation of sheep and goats. That's, that what he's, that's what he's saying. This is really significant. Do you know that that there is determined? What happens at the judgment is determined now? I, I, didn't, I didn't realize that. That at the judgment, there's not going to be like, okay, let's see if you're it or not. The literally idea of the judgment is it's already been decided here. In fact, Jesus describes it in another guy in Matthew's gospel. He says, I'm just going to separate him as sheep are separated from goats. It's going to be that evident. He's like, hey, sheep, goat. Hey, get over there. You're a sheep. Get over there. You're a goat. Get over there. It's going to be a separation because that's already been decided. And so when he attaches this to believing in eternal life, what he's saying is, is that trusting in Jesus in this day and age is so significant that the lifestyle that he's talking about is determined here, what's going to take place there. In other words, there is eternal significance on trusting in Jesus in my life. Now, I don't know what you do with that, but hey, when I'm faced with a situation with my boy, and which is one of the dearest things in my life other than my wife, way beyond ministry, my, that's the heartbeat of my, he's my first ministry, he and my daughter. When I look at him and the decisions of trust and reliance and see the issues that hey, the, him put it, God could have put him in anybody's home. He chose me. And that little guy's a spitting image of his dad. I mean, hey, he may have the attitude of his mom, but I mean, physically, he looks just exactly, I mean, he just is a spitting image of me. And our involvement in the relationship and God has put him in my home and, and there is eternal significance in the daily routines of my life with him. What would happen? Think about that. What would happen if every day we got out of bed and said, oh, I believe that there is eternal significance in my life today. That I want to live with that kind of... I want to live with that. I'm really hesitant to talk about this. I've debated about it all day. I went and got my hair cut today and I'm sitting with this lady and she's cutting my hair and and uh, I don't think she came. Are you here? Because I'm going to talk about you. <laughs> I don't think she's here. She didn't go to church. And I just, I was like, oh, go to church, go to church. And I told her about your church and it's, hey, it's all that. And, and uh, uh, she just, she had been through the ringer. And I'll just be honest with you. I went around town and every place was closed and I was waiting and I waited outside her shop and I was like, there was three, there was three little downtown barber shop, which barbers, they can be dangerous. And then there's the uh, beautician and I was going to go in her and hers and, and there was two or three there and I got stuck in her chair and, and she's talking to me and she'd lost two kidneys. She's 24 years old and had a kidney implant and her mother was a, a mess and, and all of these kind of details and I just, 
she's pouring out her heart to me and I was listening to her and I was just, I told her, I said, do you have a pastor that prays for you? And I just, I mean, I don't know. I don't think she was seeing the way that I saw, but that's, that's not accident. I mean, come on. See, that's not chance kind of stuff. And I wanted to stand up and I didn't want to mess up my hair, but I wanted to stand up and say, hey, this isn't chance stuff. See, I just didn't wind up here. That I'm walking in a daily reliance and walking with him and talking with him. And, and in that kind of walk and trust and relationship, that's the life that he's called me to live. That's called eternal life. And wrapped up in that lifestyle is eternal significance, literally, of what's going to happen in my future. The eternities literally is being shaped by the way that I live right now. There's eternal significance in my life. And so I was plain flat slapped right in the middle of her life today. And I told her, I said, I'll pray with you. And I said, that's not, I always say that's not preacher stuff. I don't really know why I say that, but that's not just, that's not just a statement. I'm praying, I'm sticking your business card on our fridge. We're going to pray for you. And I was, what would happen if, if just each of us, every, every day, just the mundane Thursday, finish up the revival, you're exhausted, jump in the bus, 10 hours down the road to do it all again on Friday? What if those travel days and the flying jays of your life took on eternal significance? Going to your job every day and putting the same, you know, nut and bolt together or whatever you do or the same hammer, what would happen if we got up every day and said, oh, I want to live a life of absolute utter dependence. I give you the right to put me in situations in which I'm way over my head so that I, the only possible conclusion I have, the only possible option I have is trust and reliance upon you. And out of that lifestyle, eternal significance takes place in the life of other people. Because Jesus looks at them and he says, this is so, and again, they're talking about food and they're talking about bread and fish. And Jesus takes a little boy's sack lunch and hangs on it eternal significance in their life. And if that's over a meal... I mean, it's no wonder how hot and heavy he gets over relationships with mothers and father. And Are you living with that kind of intensity? Pastor and I were talking about it today. I, I, call it, I call it living with a kingdom perspective. I refuse to live. I just, I personally, I can't tolerate in my life anything other than living every day saying, hey, I want to live through your eyes. I want to feel with your heart. I'm wide open and available. My plan is I'm going to get up tomorrow morning. I'm going to go to the Y. That's my plan. Whatever you want to do, I'm open. Preferably, I like to do shoulders, but hey, I don't have to. And I'm going to walk and live and trust and reliance and whatever you bring in my life, wow, hey, use me in that. Ah, I believe this is the gospel according to Jesus. I really do. Get wrapped up into me, walk and trust in me, and in that lifestyle, I will literally bring about through you eternal significant moments in your life. Jesus, we love you this evening. Oh, we love you so much. Thank you for moving upon my boy. Thank you for this week. Uh, thank you for my wife. Thank, thank you for what you're revealing to us in these days. Far better to us than what we deserve. Father, I just... I can't help but to wonder. I, I don't have it, but sometimes I wish I had the ability to look into the minds of others and wondering the kind of days that they had and the, perhaps the arguments they had before they got to church with their family or the tension between teenager and mom and teenager and dad and in school and work and should I go to church tonight? Oh, I don't feel like it. And I know I should go. And, the, and just 
all the complexities of life and, and the unfolding of the day that brought us here and how you're speaking to us and tying all that together as we all sit here and go, oh, that's for me tonight. Would you have your, would you speak to us like that this evening, Lord? Holy Spirit, would you come and would you tailor, would you package this message individually for each of us and start with me? I want to live a life of significance. I want to wake up in the morning and trust and rely upon you. And, and I, don't like un, hey, I don't like to be uncomfortable. I don't like tragedy. I don't like unexpected events. You know my heart. You know how I am. I'm structured and I'm organized. And I don't, I don't do well in those kind of situations. But I'm, I'm willing to risk it, Jesus. Because I know that's the kind of life you've called me to live. A life that's not led or dictated by my schedule, but a life that's led by you. That you lead and I respond that you walk and I follow. And in that life springs some of the most amazing things. And you weave me into your plan. I, I want to be available for that tonight. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. First and foremost, are you a Christian tonight? And maybe you've come for the last few nights and, and maybe you've been kind of trying this on for size. I just want to be frank with you. The best that I have, the best that I can do, I don't know how to actually say it to you, I've described to you what it means to be a Christian tonight. And um, certainly there are things that God will have to work out in your life. And people say to me all the time, well, I'm trying to quit drinking and I'm trying to quit smoking and I'm trying to quit swearing and I'm trying to, yeah, that's good stuff. And yes, and he's going to work some of that stuff out in your life. And sure, hey, we embrace that. But I'm not talking about that. <laughs> I'm not standing up here saying stop smoking and become a Christian. I'm saying, would you rely on Jesus and for me, one of the first significant things in my life as a young Christian was quit. I smoked for 10 years of my life. And Jesus addressed me on smoking, but I still smoked and went to church. And it, I, he didn't address me. He didn't come to me and say, Jeremiah, Christians don't smoke. He came to me and said, every time you're stressed, every time you, you, you're pushed, you know, to the limit, every time you're under pressure, you reach for a cigarette. I, I'd rather you reach for me. I don't want you dependent upon anything in your life for me, Jeremiah. And that's why I don't smoke anymore. It wasn't because, well, Christians don't smoke. Well, yeah, Christians don't smoke, but they also don't overeat. And there's several areas that we could kind of get nitpicky about. But what would happen tonight if, hey, are you believing? Are you trusting? Is he speaking to you tonight? If he is, would you, uh, would you respond? Would you get out of your seat right now and come and say, Jesus, I want to respond to you tonight. And I don't have this all figured out and I've got a lot of questions and I'm not sure, but I hear you speaking to me tonight and it's not much, but I'm going to trust you tonight and I'm going to respond and I'm going to say, hey, heads are bowed and eyes are closed. No one's looking around, please. And just say, Jesus, I want to trust you like that radically in my life. And then the rest of us, <laughs> if you are a Christian, where is he pressing you? What I'm finding in my own spiritual walk and what we're going to go into in depth tomorrow night is that he is constantly leading me to areas of my life that I'm leaning on without even knowing it. And he's saying, Jeremiah, you've got a little prop there in your life that is, uh, it's got to be dealt with. Whether it's a talent, whether it's a personality issue, whether it's a, some deep-seated inward spiritual problem that you don't even realize you have, he's saving me from myself. 
and you know if he's talking to you tonight. Let's just have a, a brief time of prayer. Pastor's going to come in a moment or two, and he's going to dismiss us. But um, if he's speaking to you tonight, would you respond? And if anyone comes forward and you happen to have some insight in their life and you love them and are walking through some things with them and you want to come and lean or lean on them and say, hey, I, you're not alone in this. In the name of Jesus, you're not alone in this. I strongly encourage that. I strongly encourage that. It's, it's what we call the body. Are you open? I want to give you permission tonight to seek. I want to give you permission tonight to respond. Jesus, we love you. Bring me into a closer, deeper reliance upon you. I got to have it. I want to believe. I don't want to have a lifestyle of belief. And in that lifestyle of belief, use me in your kingdom. I trust you in Jesus' name.